doing of it. And uh, so this morning together, uh, we're going to start the Beatitudes. And if you're a lover of the Beatitudes, I think this will be a special time for you. If you're new to the Beatitudes, I hope that I can be the privileged one to introduce them to you. So open your Bibles, if you have one, are so privileged to have a Bible, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And if you think about it, while I'm preaching, say a prayer for my voice that it holds out this morning. <clears throat> Verse 1, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth, began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the objective here of Jesus' teaching is pretty obvious, that his intention is to get people to go to heaven. Heaven is the goal. Heaven is ultimate. But according to verse 3, it's only for the poor in spirit. According to a 2014 movie called Heaven is for Real, Heaven is for Everyone. In the movie, in the book that preceded it, nobody is kept out of heaven. Everybody goes. There is no necessary heart disposition, such as is explained here in verse 3 as being poor in spirit. And so, in this way, the theological message of heaven is for real is the same stunning theological message of that great Disney flick, All Dogs Go to Heaven. One of the favorite movies for children, right? And you remember it when you were a kid. Churches across the country purchased tickets in block sales and stuffed movie theaters with themselves and with invitees as the benchmark evangelism program of the season. Thousands of seekers came to come see this movie that, in fact, heaven is for real. Thousands of churches made it a critical part of their evangelization program. In the book, a three-year-old boy is undergoing surgery, and he makes visits to heaven where he sits next to the Holy Spirit. According to him, Jesus rides on a rainbow-colored horse, and while he himself is sitting on Jesus' lap, angels sing him songs. It's all very comforting. It's all very sentimental. And you would think to yourself, well, that's kind of cutesy. It came from my grandchild. I think, I, I think I'd probably give him a sweet hug. But this became the New York Times' number one bestseller for weeks And the movie, listen, made over $100 million. People want to know about heaven. There are very few people, and probably none among us this morning in this room, who do not believe heaven is for real. That's like trying to convince people chocolate tastes good. Everybody already knows and kind of believes, except for the hardened, you know, 1%, who just is a hardened atheist, Heaven is for real. Maybe there's some question among some of you as to whether hell is for real, but I think everybody, kind of because we all want to go to a place that's nice after we die, think that, you know, there's got to be a heaven. And no matter how you think about, oh, maybe some of the issues of truth, justice, righteousness, and those things working out uh, by God, there's got to be a place for heaven, and then there's got to be a place for Hitler, right? So we all kind of, I think, accept that even if we're not Christians. One of the things here about Matthew chapter 5, and I want this to become important to you, is that this particular section here is the first public teaching explained or given to you by Matthew, the very first gospel in the New Testament. Just think about it. Here it is, the very first gospel written. People would have picked it up. They would have wanted to know what do the apostles of Jesus Christ teach about him. They would have started reading through it. And by the time they come to chapter 5, they actually get the first public teaching. And in the first public teaching of Jesus, he talks about heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you have to imagine with someone as brilliant as Jesus Christ that he's going to speak in such a way as to catch everybody's ear. Everybody wants to hear about heaven. Everybody's pretty curious about heaven. And really, then, this goes even a little further because Jesus is teaching here about how to, how to get to heaven. 
without going into all the description of this verse in the original language, it's only 12 mere words. And it includes a promise that there's a certain condition, but for those who meet that condition, hey, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you want to shorthand that to simply saying they go to heaven, that's fine. The kingdom of heaven then is And heaven itself is what Jesus is first talking about then in his public ministry. And in the last week of his earthly life, just before he was crucified, Jesus taught publicly on heaven and the kingdom of heaven 11 different times in the last week of his life. So from beginning to end, you have here a man teaching on heaven. That makes Jesus unique among men. means that nothing changed from the beginning of his teaching, uh, setting off as a teacher to the masses, to the end of his setting off as the teacher of the masses, which is very important because when someone is teaching you on life after death, you want to know what's their authority for doing so. And he has unparalleled authority to be able to teach about heaven. He claimed over and over and over again, I have come down from heaven. In other words, I'm teaching you about somewhere I've been, as opposed to all other teachers who claim all kinds of other sources, usually their visions and dreams about heaven, not Jesus. He says, I have been there. Again, consider the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. In this way, he accepted the worship of men. One man wrote this, There is no parallel in other religions. If you had gone to Buddha and asked him, Are you the son of Brahma? He would have said, My son, you are still in the valley of illusion. If you had gone to Socrates and asked, Are you Zeus? He would have laughed at you. If you had gone to Muhammad and asked, Are you Allah? He would have first torn his clothes and then cut your head off. But men offered Jesus the worship due to God, and in a monotheistic culture, he accepted their worship. All of this then makes Jesus' teaching on heaven authoritative, not anecdotal. So let's dig into the sermon a little bit. As you might know, that chapters 5 through 7 are a single sermon that Jesus preached. It is called the Sermon on the Mount. This sermon occurs one year into his three-year ministry. And it has a thesis statement. Look down at verse 20. This summarizes the entire reason for the sermon. Jesus says, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That is the main central point that he is teaching people. And by the way, when they heard that, they were struck because in their minds, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was oh so very high. And of course, if you've read the scriptures, you know that they were quite the hypocrites. But here you see it again. This is about entering the kingdom of heaven. This is about what happens after you die. This is about your eternity. This is of vital interest to you. These are words from someone who claimed to be from heaven, whose teaching did not change from the beginning of his ministry to the end of his ministry, all about heaven, all about entering the kingdom of heaven. And he has a message about entering the kingdom of heaven that vitally connects to you and your eternal happiness, your eternal blessedness, your eternal joy, your very soul, which God gave you in creating you. And the sermon itself is remarkable for both its simplicity and and depth. Everything from chapter 5, verse 21, down through verse 30 features the most significant form of teaching by which men's consciences are bound to the Word of God, that of precept and example. And then you get a statement like, for example, Matthew 7, verse 12, that you can live in for the rest of your life, even though it's just a few words. Jesus says, "...in everything, therefore, treat people 
the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Only Jesus Christ could take the entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets, and summarize it into just a few words and say, this is everything. Treat people the way you want them to treat you. But he does. And it's so profound and it's so wise and it guides every ethical decision in our life. And again, digging kind of into the background here, go back to the beginning of chapter 5, you'll notice at the beginning of verse 1, Jesus saw the crowds. Well, let's kind of discover a little bit about them just to kind of understand. We're going to kind of put ourselves there a little bit, at least in our imagination. Back in verse 24 of the prior chapter. In fact, let's go back to chapter 4, verse 23. It says, Jesus was going all throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Well, that had a pretty electric effect. Verse 24, the news about him spread throughout all Syria. When you think of Syria, do you think of it as a Jewish place? I dare say no. It wasn't today. It isn't today, and it wasn't back then. But there were Jews living throughout Syria. Verse 24, And they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases, pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And then I want you to see this at the beginning of verse 25. Do you see the first two words? Does it say what? Large crowds. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, and the ten cities called the Decapolis, and Jerusalem, and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. That's like, that's like saying the people came up from New York City, and they came down from Boston. And they were coming in from all the way over from Rhode Island and all the way over from New York State. They were coming in from everywhere. So when you read the word large crowds, that's significantly large crowds. There's six different regions spoken of here. Now, the crowds would have been primarily Jewish, but more than likely there would have been some Gentile onlookers among them. Because of all these kind of Gentile areas like Syria and Decapolis. Decapolis is the place where Jesus healed the, sw- healed the demoniac and the, and the swine. That's where they raised pigs. Remember that? So you don't, Jews don't live where they raise pigs, right? So this is, this is all a little bit bigger, a little bit more surprising than maybe we would have thought. So in your mind now, I want you to think of almost like a Times Square on New Year's Eve kind of environment where there's just a lot of people following this man because after all, he is healing everybody. There is, he's the proverbial doctor with whom there is no case too hard and whom you can bring your son or your grandmother and he can heal them all. And when he heals, it's completely gone. And so the popularity of him is huge. That popularity is set up intentionally by his healing miracles so that he can teach them. That's the greater purpose for why he came. And here it is. He is teaching all these folks about heaven. Then also, join me back in verse 1 as well, chapter 5, verse 1. He went up on the mountain. Well, this you can identify with. These are... This is a mountain like the kind of mountains we have in Connecticut, which is to say not. These are like the mountains they have in in Vermont. Uh, A real mountain is up in Vermont, right? Or New Hampshire, where you go climb Mount Washington and it's 6,200 and some odd feet. Um, This is like climbing the hill nearby, but because the people don't want to feel like they live in a lame area, they call it a mountain. So you have all these wonderful things. Well, that's the way Israel is. It doesn't really have any mountains. It just has a hills. And certainly surrounding the Sea of Galilee, off in almost every direction, are a series of hills. And this one would have been on the north, uh, northwest to northern coast of that beautiful teardrop-shaped, very large body of glistening blue water that the sun kind of you know, comes up and over every single day and such a part of the livelihood of, of the people of that land and had all kinds of fish and meant so much to so many as far as the water supply that people enjoyed. It fed the Jordan River, and it was a significant uh, source of, of industry and culture right where Jesus did the vast majority of his miracles. And here, you're being invited in to sit down at the Sea of Galilee, though maybe you've never been there, and to sit down by those glistening blue waters and to listen in on the master teacher himself 
open up and tell you about heaven. Now, it says particularly in verse 1, he sat down. You have to kind of picture then a long downward hill that eventually ends into the sea. And as the hill slopes down and it gets fairly steep in other areas and fairly level in some others, Jesus takes a seat at a level area. The Gospel of Luke describes where he was standing or where he was seated as a level area. So here then you can picture Jesus in an amphitheater type of environment with thousands upon thousands of primarily Jews with some Gentiles sprinkled in all around in an amphitheater style with Jesus. And here it is. Text says very carefully that he sat down. It's actually an important little note right there. In our culture, we don't have the teacher sit down. We have him stand up, right? You're the ones who are seated. I'm the ones who are standing up because it is my privilege to address you. But think about it this way. If a university establishes a faculty position of eminence, they call it a faculty what? Chair. Uh, The chair of authority, the seat upon which someone who has authority speaks from. In fact, it was known that among the rabbis back in that day, when the rabbi was doing teaching, but you were merely walking along with him or standing, that teaching was non-authoritative. That wasn't binding on you. Oh, but when he sat down, that teaching was authoritative. That teaching was binding. This was official dogma from the rabbi. Same way here. By the very fact of him sitting down, separates this from merely him doing a teaching along the wayside, along the creek, along the Sea of Galilee. He is now seated. The culture of the day would have perfectly understood This man is speaking, you better be quiet because he's not going to get a lot of air volume going because he's seated down. And yet, I think we can kind of appreciate the fact that Jesus must have been pretty strong for him to speak to thousands of people, even in this natural amphitheater, just with the rustle of the wind and little children and all the other kinds of effects of, of life and birds flying by and everything to look at that was distracting. In order for him to take your attention off of looking at the Sea of Galilee behind him, and in order for you to fix your little peepers upon him, he's got to say something and do something that's so significant that you're not going to be so tempted. And he does. He sits down. Then I want you to look at verse 2. Another important little note here. I hope your Bible includes the words, he opened his mouth and began to teach them. If you have the NIV this morning, it does not, but pretty much every other English translation does. So if you have the NIV, trust me, it's in the text. It needs to be in the text because the words opened his mouth is obvious. He opened his mouth to start teaching them. Even Jesus had to open his mouth in order to start teaching people. But rather, the word opened his mouth is kind of a shorthand from the Old Testament for a very significant issue. In the Old Testament, for a man to open his mouth meant that he was then acting as God's mouthpiece. For example... God commands Moses to go down to Egypt and open your mouth. From then on in, Moses spoke as God's prophet. When he spoke, God spoke. Later in history, God commanded Ezekiel, quote, when I speak to you, I will open your mouth. So Ezekiel's words, that great Old Testament prophet, though spoken by a mere man, were in fact God's exact words. And even later in this very same Gospel of Matthew that maybe lays open on your lap right now, Jesus quotes a passage out of the 78th Psalm that reads this way. Listen for those key words, opened his mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Here again, God's mouthpiece. For a man to open his mouth means that in this case he is going to speak truth that has been hidden in God. God is now making truth known to man. So this is a significant event. And again, this is to help you who weren't there and are merely seated in a wooden pew this morning, wishing you could be seated by a nice crackling blue sea and the birds flapping and watching fishermen off in the distance, wishing you could have such a vacation holiday, are yet here encouraged to take very seriously these words. And maybe even if we had been there, oh, would we have been the kind of people who would have listened in or got tired and maybe watched the kids playing, you know, five families down? A little challenging if you were listening there, if you were, if you were actually among that crowd. Okay. So let's look then together, spend the rest of our time together discussing the first beatitude, just verse 3, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, in this beatitude, there is a condition, a group, and a promise. And by the way, that word beatitude simply comes from the word blessed. There's about uh, eight of them that go through this text. Uh, Blessed if you do this, blessed, blessed, blessed. So that's the idea. You then have a, a blessed disposition. You have a blessed life. So these are called the beatitudes. So we're going to go through these three things. If you're a note taker this morning, you want to get these three words down. Condition, group, and promise. The first is the condition. The condition. And this is critical. I want you to look at this. It's simply the first word of verse 3. Blessed. Blessed. To the Jews, there were two types of blessedness. In fact, let me illustrate this to you. Take your Bible. You want to leave your finger here if that's good or mark it some other way. Would you join me back in the book of First Kings chapter 10? 1 Kings chapter 10. Come back to the days of Solomon here. So as I said, the Jews had two ideas about blessedness. One pertained to God only. I think you would understand that. That would be uniqueness. God is unique. So when you say God is blessed, you're referring to Him as different than all others. He's God. There's no one like Him. And then there's a term pertaining to men, that's happiness, kind of blended with a spiritual integrity, a kind of a successful person. So you could say, as a Jew, the Lord is blessed, and you mean it. You mean there's, He's great, there's no one like Him. We sing that in our songs. No one is like you. You're blessed. You means you're in a category of your own. You're, you're not creation. You are unique. You're perfect. And at the same time, you could say... Someone is a blessed person, but the Hebrews always used a different word. That kind of becomes important. It didn't mean that the man was perfect when you said, you're a blessed man. It just meant his life was enviable and successful. Okay, let's walk through this text. This is fun. Watch this. Now, when the queen of Sheba heard about the famous Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with difficult questions. So she came to Jerusalem with a very large retinue, with camels carrying spices with very much gold and precious stones. When she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was hidden from the king, which he did not explain to her. Here we go. When the queen of Sheba perceived all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his servants, the attendance of his waiters and their attire, his cupbearers, And his stairway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. This was a queen. She said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. And here we go. How Blessed are your men, how blessed are these your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. Now here, she's talking about how we talk about a man being blessed. That's one Hebrew word, okay? It's kind of the word that would be translated happy. It's ashray. And then look at verse 9. Blessed be the Lord. Now, that's the word Baruch, different Hebrew word. In other words, unique God, blessed be the Lord. Your God is unique. He is blessed, who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. She gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great amount of spices and precious stones. Never again did such abundance of spices come in as that which the queen of Sheba gave King Solomon. We'll stop there. Just watch to see how in verse 8, she's blown away at Solomon, his wealth, his wisdom, and everything that goes on. And she's like, I didn't even know the half of it. Her spirit kind of, kind of oozes out of her. She sees what he has and who he is. And she gives him a third-party reference How blessed are those who are able to even be around you, Solomon, day after day. Just even the guys who set the table to listen to what you have to say. 
And then she goes on from there. She says, and blessed be the Lord your God. Even today, if you ever listen to the Hebrew prayers, they all start with the word Baruch, blessed. Baruch atah Adonai Elohim numelech kalam. Blessed are you, O Lord, maker of heaven and earth. It's the way their typical prayers start. They still today use that word Baruch, but you never, ever use the word Baruch to another man because that only belongs to God. See? You don't mix the two. Now let's go back together to Matthew chapter 5. Now that you understand there's two different ideas here, kind of have to figure out now what which we're talking about here in verse 3. Let me just say this also. Everybody wants everybody else to call them blessed. You want everybody to call you blessed. It's just the way we're made. It's what everybody wants. It can be good. It can be bad. Even Joel Osteen, he makes his millions of dollars because he says your best life now. Because innately in all of us, we want to have the best life now. And that's kind of the idea behind blessed. What is the blessed life then as men measure blessedness? Well, can it go back to the Queen of Sheba maybe a little bit? That relationally you have success. Financially you have success. Health-wise you have success. Obviously I'm a failure this morning. It is what everyone wants in life then, this holistic view of being blessed. Only everyone tries to obtain it in their own way. And now there's a twist that we can finally get into in our text. The blessed life that Jesus speaks of here in verse 3 isn't. It's not the kind of life men look at and say, wow, how blessed. You know why? Just look back at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So this can't be referring now to if you follow my teachings, Jesus saying, men are going to look at you and they're going to be so impressed like the Queen of Sheba was with Solomon and say, wow, are you blessed? Because nobody looks at somebody who's poor in spirit and says, wow, are you blessed? So this is not men talking about men. This passage is talking about God's estimation of you. This is God telling who is blessed, who God declares blessed. Most likely, while men in this world will think you cursed, to be poor in spirit then is to have spiritual success. And to have poor in spirit, to be poor in spirit, is to have the kingdom of heaven. Notice Jesus says that. So this person is blessed being poor in spirit because he gains the kingdom of heaven. This then is Jesus teaching on the person God himself calls blessed. We can go on and on about who men say is blessed. It's LeBron James. You know, it's Donald Trump. It's Bill Gates. Or we could go through a whole host of names of people who have, have just kind of got the world by the tail and can have anything they want. But who does God say is blessed? Well, hey, let's now really talk about something quite different. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So let's move then from the condition to the group. And the group is this, the poor in spirit. Who are the poor in spirit? Well, they're not poor in the Holy Spirit. That wouldn't be blessed, right? And it's certainly not talking about those who are financially poor. One of the ancient emperors of Rome kind of came along later in the 300, early 300s. His name was Julian. He actually went down to history as having this name, Julian the Apostate. <laughs> I'd just like to go down to history with that name. He said he wanted to confiscate every Christian's property so that they might become poor and thereby enter heaven. Interesting, isn't it? He misread this verse. Now, it's not talking about being financially poor. It's not talking about being poor in the Holy Spirit. Being poor in spirit means to be someone who knows yourself to be spiritually poor, which, of course, is the exact opposite of what everybody thinks really will make your life great. To be spiritually poor is to, be, to recognize that you have nothing of spiritual value residing within you. The opposite of being poor in spirit 
is being filled with self-esteem, belief in self, pride. It's so opposite here. It's so contrary to everything we are taught and that we buy into. So now, understanding how opposite it is from the way that we are taught and the way that we are, we are kind of influenced in our world by our parents sometimes, by our schools, by television, by music. This runs, boy, 180 counter to it all. Blessed are the poor in spirit, not those who are rich in self. Now we can kind of go back and understand what's going on here. To be poor in spirit is a person who possesses the virtues hated by men but loved by God. God loves someone who's poor in spirit. Kind of a broken and contrite heart idea here. And I wonder, each of these Beatitudes is so deep that after Jesus spoke each one, he kind of put in an intentional pause, kind of just push the pause button and give everybody a chance to just try to absorb it. Because if you read these too quickly, you ever do that in your quiet time? (laughs) You ever try to read the Beatitudes too quickly in your quiet time and you just go through it and you buzz through it and you get done? And it's like, well, I don't, I don't get any of that. It's kind of like vapor. Did you ever consider taking a beatitude a day for your quiet time? Or maybe like write it on a piece of paper and take it in the car and kind of lick it, stick it to the dashboard for the ride home or the ride back, the ride to work? Oh, they will richly repay you, beloved. They will richly repay you. You'll not be the worse off for it. The words of the Lord Jesus Christ are deeper than deep. They make theologians swim and drown, and they make the child to playfully splash. They're well worth our efforts and energy at becoming extremely familiar with, and I really look forward to walking through these with you for my own soul's sake, and then also, I hope, for your own benefit. Think about it this way. There's nobody in the world who's walking around of their own wisdom saying, gee, I think the way that I would really have a blessed life is to be poor in spirit. There's nobody who says that. Nobody except for the followers of Jesus Christ because they accept His teaching as authoritative. Remember, again, being poor in spirit is recognizing that you have nothing good in you. It's not just the parroting of words to try to fit in among Christians, figuring out how Christians talk and how they kind of relate to each other. None of that means anything. Being poor in spirit is a disposition of heart before God and man. Maybe it would help us then to think about, well, how poor is poor in spirit? I think this will clarify it for you. There were two words for poor in the language of the day. One was panes and the other was patokos. Panes and patokos. Panes was a poor person, but the poor person has a steady job. He works excuse me, without a steady job. He works when he can find it. He's like a day laborer. This poor person has no savings. There's, if we were to put it in contemporary terms, we'd talk about somebody who, if their car transmission went, they'd be sunk. Or if they get a, a, a bad back and they can't work, they'll be sunk. And they can't pay the deductibles on their insurance so they don't go to the doctor. Somebody who's just living on the edge. They, they have just enough money to pay the bills, but they do not have any reserve. That's, that's the panace poor person. But then there's the patokos poor person. I want you to go over to the Gospel of Luke with me, please. Gospel of Luke. Go first to Luke 21. I want to understand this person. This is the person Jesus is describing when he talks about being poor in spirit. Beginning in verse 1 of Luke 21, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. People were dumping money, you know, coins, and making a big racket as it went into the treasury and getting everybody around to see them, you know. Woo, look at how much I give. Verse 2, and he saw a poor, here's our word, patokos, widow, putting in two small copper coins. He said, truly, I say to you, this Patokos widow put in more than all of them. 
He goes on, he says, for they out of their surplus put in the offering, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. So this is a woman who just gave away her last two pennies. And that's how poor she is. That's how poor she is. By the way, that is, that is not saying this is how you need to give. Next time the offering plate comes around, put your mortgage in there. Sell off your house and give it to the church and everything else. This is not teaching that. This is talking about how awful the religious system was under the scribes and the Pharisees and, and really the, uh, the burdens of conscience that they put on widows. In other words, you know, just, they just suck their money. And by the way, it goes on very much today as well in religion, Christian, Christian religion. So this is how poor she is. She's this poor. Go back a couple chapters to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Let's see this one. This is starting in verse 18. Jesus has the young, the young guy come to him and say, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. And he gives him a bunch of commandments to obey. Verse 21 The young ruler says, all these things I've kept from my youth. And so when Jesus heard this, he said, well, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the patokoi, all the poor, meaning the people who are utterly destitute. And then he goes on and says, and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Of course, the guy books it and goes the other way because he doesn't want to give away his money. He loves his money more than he loves Jesus Christ. It wasn't something new back then, and it's not something new today. But this was, Jesus was commanding the man to sell all that he had. He was a wealthy young guy and to give it all to the very poorest of the poor. Let's go back to another verse. Let's go back to Luke 16. So another couple pages back, perhaps. This is a very lengthy parable, but I want to just, in verse 19, the rich man and Lazarus, there was a rich man, Jesus begins this parable, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man, a Patokos man named Lazarus, was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which are falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores, and the poor man died. How poor is Patokoi poor? Well, Patokos poor is so poor that you can't even stop the dogs from licking your sores because you have no energy. You have absolutely no money. You're simply hoping that some rich guy who has a lot is simply going to walk by you as he goes in and out of his house. He'll see you at the gate. Perhaps he'll take mercy upon you, even though you offend him by both your smell and your visible sight to him. And as he walks by, drop a clink coin in your cup. And through that, then you could possibly buy a few crumbs for the day. Keep your life going just one more day. Well, now you understand, if you would please go back all the way to Matthew chapter 5, what we're talking about here. This is the word Jesus uses in verse 3. So please understand, when we are talking about poor in spirit, we are talking about somebody with no money. We are talking about somebody with no resources. We are usually talking about the lowest of the low, often people with mental disorders and people with alcohol backgrounds. These are the social low of society, the very lowest. And Jesus is saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, their inner self. Now you begin, I think, I hope, to catch the revolutionary nature of this teaching here. How can these people be blessed? And you can imagine everybody listening to this who is more guided by social convention than they are by words from God as to they're just going, click, shut this guy off at this point. Jesus equates the blessed person to a lonesome, socially despised beggar with only a cheap cup to hold out in the hope that he will be able to get something to eat that day. If someone will just walk by, you don't even have to look at me, just 
put something, please, in my cup. You can be repulsed by what I look at, by what I look like. Please put it in the cup. I won't bother you. And out of sheer mercy alone is the only reason why anybody would do this. They drop a coin in the cup. This is not a man who can demand a passerby to help him or can name it and claim it and get someone in society to help him. So being poor in spirit is not a personality disorder. As if all you need to do is just get over it and move on with your life. Actually, being poor in spirit is a condition you grow into the closer you get to heaven. It means because it's talking about your inner person, your spirit, that you see no self-virtue in yourself, no reason to love yourself, no goodness dwelling within you by which you must defend yourself. You are just the possessor of an inherently damnable self-righteousness that itself is from the pit of hell. Being poor in spirit, then, is a view of your own heart, recognizing I have nothing of spiritual value in myself and by myself. And for all of us who are naturally proud, especially in these hidden areas, this is perhaps a very difficult word. It is nothing less than simply seeing yourself the way God sees you spiritually, poor, beggarly poor in spirit. You and I have nothing that naturally commends us to the Almighty God by which He might be merciful to us. Therefore, the word spirit here means your spiritual worth, your spiritual abilities, your spiritual value, your spiritual resume. A poor in spirit person can't rely in themselves, but they must trust in God instead. They must trust in God instead because they're poor in spirit. A rich in spirit person can't trust God, but must trust in themselves because they're so rich. A poor in spirit person leaves judgment to God and accepts what he says to be true, whether it feels true or not. But a rich in spirit person says, well, if I feel it, then it's true. A rich in spirit person won't do that because they, because the, a poor in spirit person won't do that because they've, they've come to understand by the word of God, by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that if I go by my feelings, if I judge God by circumstances, I'm simply being rich in spirit. I'm denying the very reality of what I actually am. It's only when you feel poor in spirit. Notice I use the word feel. I don't just want you thinking and agreeing with me. I want you feeling poor in spirit and growing in that all your days, beloved, that you then will accept God for who He is as holy and pure and good and righteous and beyond figuring out so that the circumstances of your life and the pains and pressures of your life are not the, the, the yardstick by which God's goodness is measured, but by higher standard, God Himself. That's faith, biblical faith. It's when you realize that you're poor in spirit that God becomes desirable to you. You actually have warm emotions toward God when you're poor in spirit. It's hard to have warm emotions towards yourself, but you will do it, believe me. It's hard to have warm in spirit emotion, warm emotions towards yourself when you're feeling poor in spirit, but you will because that's how we are. One pastor wrote this a hundred years ago. Nothing is so essential as poverty of spirit. It is the source and spring from which alone runs the fertilizing river of a holy life. The humble heart is where the flowers of heaven find their congenial soil and grow into beauty and fragrance. I only begin to be a disciple when my proud heart is brought low and my Savior is lifted high. 
So that's the group, poor in spirit, beggars in spirit. And we already looked at the condition, the blessed. Now for the last, the promise, the promise. And it's just the remaining words of the verse, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is a promise, beloved. This isn't a hope. It is a promise from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's stated as a fact, but how can it be? How can a poor in spirit person who has no spiritual value to God or to man or even to self have the kingdom of heaven? Here's how it works. Poor in spirit person, male or female, holds out his or hers beggar's cup sores cover your spirit. You barely have enough to last you the rest of this day, frankly. And you're hoping that God is such a king who might have mercy on someone as worthy, as unworthy as yourself, who's so poor in spirit I have no value to God or man. Poor in spirit, man or woman knows he or she does not deserve to get even a single coin of goodness and mercy and righteousness from God. But God walks by and sees the poor in spirit person. And instead of clinking a single coin of heavenly treasure in your cup, beloved, he empties the treasury vault of heaven almost drowning you in heavenly currency. And you become fabulously wealthy. That's how the poor in spirit receive the promise. You come to God as the prodigal came to his own father. I am unworthy to be called your son. And the heavenly father responds with, unfathomable riches of grace. You're placed in the position of ultimate favor, ultimate grace. What? I am an inheritor of heaven. I am a child of God. God forgives me. God calls me his son. The promises of the Bible are for me, for me. Rich in spirit person says, well, I was kind of deserving of it all along. The poor in spirit person is like the Lazarus who's at the gate who is simply amazed that why would you even pay attention to me? I'm so worthless. Now, our Lord informs us of another truth here in this passage, one that is exciting, very exciting. The kingdom is not only something that is to be given in the future, it is something that is given even now. I want you to notice at the end of verse 3, there's is the kingdom of heaven. That's the present tense. No wonder then these miserable beggars who hold out their cup and get it filled overflowingly with heavenly currency are what Jesus calls in this passage the blessed. They are the happy ones with spiritual integrity before God. They are the truly successful and they are the ones who presently own the kingdom of heaven. Present possessors of the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, not theirs shall be the kingdom of heaven. They all presently possess as God releases the flood of heavenly mercies upon them. They become the richest people on earth. They are the present possessors of heaven, far more wealthy than anyone you want to name in this world. They have full and free forgiveness of all their sin, past, present, and future, They are given a new eternal family, the body of Christ to worship with every week. They get God's own promise that upon death, whether by accident or by old age, whether by who knows what, there is upon that moment the immediate guarantee of entrance into the person and majesty of Jesus Christ instantaneously. All these things, they become the instant possessors of So I ask you, is it good to be poor in spirit? Weigh it out in your soul. Why would I ever want to hold on to being rich in spirit, though I often foolishly do? 
when the promises of God get distant and the pleasures of life and myself wanting to be pleased by the way I want them to go become near. And there's one more added nuance that I need to share with you about this text as well. (coughs) The word theirs in verse 3, theirs, is put in an emphatic placement. The idea then would have been very noticeable to the original listeners. And it means this, theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. No one else gets the kingdom of heaven. Only the poor in spirit get the kingdom of heaven, and the poor in spirit get all of the kingdom of heaven. Theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. Who possesses heaven now, and who possesses heaven in the future? The blessed. And who are the blessed? They are the people who possess the virtue of being poor in spirit. So Christ's first public teaching here is designed to grant us what we all inwardly want, what we're all inwardly curious about. What is heaven like? What is life after death about? What would it be like to experience heaven today in my flesh? All these are answered, promised, and punched certain by the initial words of our Lord Jesus Christ, His first public teaching. Now, who, O Lord, is like Thee in the heavens, right? Who speaks to us with words so profound and yet so direct and so necessary? But this one right here. And they were sealed by his death and his resurrection. Are you with me, my beloved friends? I'm certainly with you. And Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these touching words of our beloved Lord. How anyone, anyone can have heaven requires no attainment to become poor in spirit. And so I pray, Father, for a child or adult or senior here this morning that you may guide us to be poor in spirit, recognizing our spiritual value cannot be in ourselves but exists all in you. We trust you. We call upon you for the forgiveness of sins for we have broken your commandments and we are needy, needy to be forgiven needy to feel being poor in spirit so that we may feel what it is to be blessed and to be the present possessors of the kingdom of heaven. Dearest Father, we lift up this wonderful text to you and thank you for sending the Son to teach it to us. Now we ask that the ministry of your Holy Spirit may teach it to us the rest of this week for your own glory. Amen.